Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein. Today, we are speaking with Carlos Hoyt. Carlos, welcome to the podcast. Carlos is a writer. He is a speaker. He is a DEI expert and a social worker, but I think he's got a little bit of a unique spin on all of this, which is what we're probably going to be speaking mostly about today in this day in today's podcast. So before we get to that, Carlos, did it's Friday afternoon. Did you bring a drink for this conversation? Well, I have a, a bottle of water next to me. Um, in terms of what I think is some of the theme of your program around <laughs> drinking. And I know I've actually heard you say like, you don't have to have an alcoholic beverage, yep. that's cool with me. So I have water, but I'll also share that sometime after college, actually it was when I had my first child, um, I actually decided that I was gonna stop drinking altogether, um, alcohol that is. Uh-huh. Never having had a problem with it, what I'm really, what I'm really fortunate to not mm-hmm. have had, but coming to the decision that it might be nice, you know, for a kid who is like in my uh, orbit uh, to know that you can make that choice too, because I think so much of our culture kind of steers kids in some sort of insidious ways towards drinking, which again, isn't problematic for everybody. Right. And I had some other reasons too. I spent a lot of my career working with populations that were pretty hard hit by substances yeah. and chemicals. And, you know, it was never really good for me to put on too much weight because of my joint issues. And so there was a confluence of things, uh, but I've stuck to that ethic or aesthetic uh, ever since. And I just don't drink alcohol. So I can't join you in imbibing something alcoholic, but my water is nearby. <laughs> I love that. And actually I, I, I'll probably on separately pick your brain on that because I'm trying to like, um, I'm, I'm exploring these 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 questions and whatnot although i do love my wine that's what i have today um david did you bring something I did you did. bring scotch I brought, no i bought a, brought a little bit of fireball whiskey with a splash of diet coke <laughs> um, but i'm actually not a good drinker first of all i'll probably be slightly inebriated after this little minuscule glass of alcohol. I don't drink that much. I could live without it. It would not be a big sacrifice for me if I didn't drink, but it is nice sometimes. You know, I, I mean, I, I really appreciate, and this is why I was saying, Carlos, I want to talk to you a bit more like for me and Dave and I, and we won't get too far in this because we've got too much else to speak about, but I'm a bit, Dave is an extrovert. <clears throat> we've, we've established this on many of our podcasts. I'm a bit of an introvert. And I love talking to people, but I, I feel like there's sometimes there needs to be some grease to the wheels and a, a glass of wine is that, is that grease for me. So hence it kind of all started with the whole my drink podcast. Cause that's kind of when you're like, all right, let's just sit back. Let's have a, a conversation. But at the same time, I'm, I'm exploring connection without that. So that's, that's a conversation for another day. That's my introvert side telling you that <clears throat> wine helps my conversation. But with all that said, we'll talk about that another day. Um, Carlos, one of the things that I'm so excited to talk to you about, and I've gotten to know you and David and I've gotten to know you a little bit over the, over this week, 
but you have been a DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, specialist, expert teaching this, but you've kind of started to take a different take on the mainstream DEI. And so I'm going to just stop there and let you just start from the beginning on who you are, what DEI is to you, and what you're doing about it now. Well, thank you. And I will um, actually observe that our bit of delightful conversation about drinking or not drinking alcohol, for me, you know, is a great sort of example of how conversations around diversity can and should happen, right? <laughs> because there's no judgment, you know, from your side to my side. Um, I should let you know that both of my grown kids certainly do, you know, drink every now and then. I'm happy to buy somebody a glass of whatever and be in their presence. You know, so the idea of coexisting across different lifestyles, if I'm not making too much of that example, is for me part of what this work should be about, you know, without judgment and shaming and blaming. So it was fun to begin that way. Um, I will, and I know this because Jen and David has been, been kind enough to tell me that we have two audiences, one who will be uh, taking this in via YouTube, so a visual is okay, and one who are just doing audio. I'm gonna show some slides just very quickly. And if you're the uh, person who is just listening, I don't mean to exclude you in terms of the visuals. I understand that you can actually get the YouTube thing at some other point, and I'm always happy to share my slides. But for the sake of you know talking to my friends, uh, Jen and David, and those who do have video, video. I'm going to share my desktop, see if I can do this. All right. So if I'm right, I hope you can see a slide that has a picture of me and then some words there. What I'm sharing with you and what I thought I'd try to do as much as I could during our talk is give you some examples of how I actually do DEI uh, instead of just talking about it. So very often when I'm starting a workshop, I'll say to the people who are introducing me, please don't give my boring background. I actually wanna introduce myself a little bit differently. And instead of going out and telling my story, I say, I'm gonna invite folks to tell me about me. And I put up this list of sort of human universal qualities and traits that people have. And for those of you who can't see the list, well, the slide actually says it begins immediately. Who is this person? Please jot down your first impression thoughts and speculations about the following aspects of my identity, meaning me, Carlos. And I have this list and it goes sex, gender, race, ethnicity, culture, age, physical condition, in parentheses, disabilities, question mark, sexual orientation, spiritual orientation, political orientation, marital status, socioeconomic status, personality, and finally agenda. So I say to folks like, no kidding, I want you to think about each of those dimensions of my being and sense of self. And after you have a chance to think about it individually, then I want you to talk to your neighbors about it. And if you're at a table, talk to the table about it. And I'm gonna leave now. So I literally leave the room. Before I do, I stand up and I put my arms out and I sort of turn around and get a look at me. And I say, I want you to feel free to really speak honestly with yourself and each other about me. And there's nothing you can say about me that's gonna hurt my feelings. Because when I come back, I'm gonna ask you who I am in all these categories. So I leave the room for a little bit. I poke my head in usually to see how they're doing and people are having a good time and laughing. And then when I come back, I say, okay, let's go. What's my sex? And you can imagine the answers that I get, you know, given the way I sort of appear uh, to the world. But after every single thing that I ask, I say, what made you think that? Like, how do you know that about me? What signals that I am male, for those of you who thought I was male? Uh, and then we go down the line. When I get to gender, I say, 
again, you know, what's my gender? And then I ask, what's the difference between sex and gender? How do we think about those things? On and on and on. And I'm not confirming or disconfirming anything people say as we go through the list. I'm just inviting what the brain is doing anyway, which is sizing me up, just as I size people up, because that's what we do. And if we didn't do it, we wouldn't make it through an hour of a day. We make assumptions. When I finally get down to agenda and it's time to ask folks what my agenda was in doing this this way, I always get wonderful answers. You know, things that include, well, you wanted us to be aware of the assumptions that we make and not to make them. In which case I always say, well, the first part is true. I want us to be aware of our assumptions, but nobody has the power to not make them. And again, if we didn't make assumptions, we wouldn't make it through the day. The key is to check them in the best way that we can. So then I go through and I try to give people a sense of who I think I am in these categories. And I also point out things like, wow, when we got to sexual orientation, there was a pause. Why is that? You know, and it happens quite a bit. And folks say, well, society's come to the point where we don't wanna make assumptions about certain people because it might be offensive. So the, and the other thing that comes out in the agenda is, you know, that people realize that I'm trying to get to the point as quickly as possible where we can talk pretty honestly and hopefully with some humor and lightness about each other, about topics that can be really heavy. So with that in mind, I'll tell you a little bit about um, who I am, but let me pause. Jen and David, if you have any questions about that or anything you think might be useful for the audience, I'm happy to hear it. Well, why don't you go ahead and uh, oh, tell us I'll about who you going. are? We'll have a lot of questions, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So again, for those of you who don't have the visuals, um, the next thing I'm showing is just a map. <laughs> and it's a map of North America that goes down into Central America. And there's an arrow from a little place called Costa Rica, which is where I was born uh, in Puerto Limon in 1960. And then an arrow straight up to Boston uh, because my mom had come to Boston uh, when I was about three-ish, and then I came up when I was about four-ish, she came and worked as a maid uh, in the suburbs of Boston. And after she had earned just enough money to send back to my dad, my dad brought my older sister and I um, up to Boston and we reunited. And I did a bunch of my growing up in uh, the Dorchester neighborhood of Boston. I didn't get back to Costa Rica until my 40th birthday. Um, and it was a real treat because I went with my dad and he hadn't been back in quite a while either. So I have some visuals here. And again, I'm sorry for those of you who are just listening of my dad, um, who you'll see there in the center, uh, reuniting with some of his friends and his brother, you know, and going to some of the houses, literally, that my folks lived in. Uh, pretty impoverished, you know, my folks weren't um, living the high life back in Costa Rica. That's part of why they wanted to do the immigrant thing and come to America and have a better life for their family. When we did come here, I landed in Dorchester, as I said, and I lived in a Dorchester triple-decker, um, as many of us are familiar with. And after sixth grade in Boston Public Schools, and I do not mean to knock Boston Public Schools, uh, but my folks did want something better for me at that point. So they enrolled me in something called Metco. Metco, for those of you who aren't in this neck of the woods, is a voluntary busing program that uh, at the time that I was coming up and it still exists, um, basically ferried, you know, by bus or, or station wagon, kids from what we call inner city or urban um, sort of neighborhoods to, to more affluent, better resourced uh, suburban towns. And I went every morning from Dorchester to Dover, Massachusetts, Dover being a very uh, wealthy suburb. 
And the slide that I'm showing right now shows what the medium household income was for Dorchester when I was coming up, or actually thereafter, and it's around $44,000. And the slide, the next one for Dover shows $184,000. And again, this is from a few years ago, so I'm not sure how things have changed, but you get the point. You know, every single day I got the choice, I got the choice and opportunity to go from one planet to a whole different planet. <laughs> it was completely uh, horizon expanding for me. And at least in my case, it was a, a life-changing experience in all the positive ways. You know, as we all know, the um, moving from one culture, one environment to another, especially when it involves uh, drastic changes or differences in power and privilege can be hard. I was very lucky. I couldn't have had a better experience. The folks who were receiving Medco students in my year was the first year were just ready. You know, I had host families. I had folks who treated me as if I was part of their family. And not only was my schooling uh, enhanced and improved, but I also made some wonderful friends and felt like part of the community. The next slide is a picture of me and my bride. Um, back when we were um, both younger. She still looks pretty much the same though, I will say her name is Leslie. Leslie and I met at a summer camp uh, in West Poland, Maine, uh, a camp for um, kids who don't have as much as some other kids. And we fell in love with that work and fell in love with each other um, and we got married. Uh, so I have known Leslie since we were 17 and 18, uh, which is quite a while. I often say, although she doesn't like it, even if things don't go well from here out, we had a good run a good long run. The next slide is a picture of my kids uh, because I like people to see you know, that there is personal and the professional, particularly in this work. And as folks who have the image can see, there's a spectrum of color uh, in this picture. I'm easily the darkest person uh, in, the, in the photo. My daughter who is to Leslie's left, Leslie's to my left, um, if she's next to me out in the world, you know, people think she is mestiza, you know, some sort of a mixture, et cetera, on her own out in the world, depending on how she wears her hair and what time of the year it is and the summer she darkens up, she could pass as folks say. Uh, you can see that Leslie, you know, is as optically white as any optically white person. And then Evan, you know, was born with blue eyes <laughs> and brownish hair, um, and he tans up pretty well too. The next picture for those who can't see is also my family, but it's framed by a whole bunch of words. Words that include ability, power, gender, sex, multiculturalism, worldview. And on the bottom it says, being comfortable in our own skin. And in terms again of what I would hope this work we call DEI is shooting for, it's that. You know, that everybody that we encounter, that everybody, you know, who lives in our society, and if it's not too goofy on our planet, you know, gets a right to feel comfortable in their own skin. And I mean that both technically, corporeally, but also in terms of circumstance and community and things like that. Um, I've been really fortunate in so many ways, my family sort of being my, my primary good fortune. But I also was lucky enough to do some studying and get right through the PhD sort of level and really you know, put my mind with the good help of a lot of mentors to issues having to do with identity you know, and race and racism and, and just how to think about that. And I was fortunate to um, be afforded the opportunity by, Ox by Oxford University in 2016 to put out a pretty academic book for those of you who are considering it. I'll try to write one that's more accessible as soon as I can. Uh, called The Arc of a Bad Idea, Understanding and Transcending Race. 
And in a nutshell, you know, this was sort of an expansion of my uh, dissertation study, which was about talking with people who look more or less like me, uh, but who don't subscribe to uh, the notion of race uh, as a legitimate um, category. And it doesn't mean, you know, that I am colorblind in the ways that people find uh, problematic, or that I think we've entered some post-race, you know, moment where race doesn't matter anymore. It means that the legitimacy of race, you know, as a scientific empirical uh, concept is not just suspect, it's bankrupt. Like it just doesn't work, it isn't there. And I, you know, work as hard as I can to facilitate opportunities for folks to think about what that means. These days, most folks are savvy enough to be able to say and know that race is a social construct, quote unquote, but I sort of invite them to think about, well, then why do we keep acting as if it isn't, <laughs> you know, and what would it mean to not do that? And, you know, we can talk about more of that as the, as the interview continues, if you're interested. One of the reasons I was so interested in speaking with you is one, that I had the chance to get to know you a little bit early in the week, which is lovely, but I'm also um, very interested and curious about organizations that have uh, emerged sort of in the wake of the, the George Floyd murder, the increased interest in people and organizations everywhere to do the best they can to be inclusive, and then the approaches that have come out of that. And I know that um, ILV, as well, I'll refer to the Institute for Liberal Values, is very interested in thinking about, you know, how we can do that in ways that don't inadvertently, I would say, you know, um, cause people to feel alienated or go about it in ways that might be wrong. Um, and I appreciate the fact that you have values um, that you uh, ascribe to and actually have some of them there that I love. Um, uh, these are your values, I mean, enter dialogue in good faith, approach different viewpoints with curiosity and humility, accept that reasonable minds may differ. And I actually added my wish that we would add and pursue discovery and creation of common ground, which again is what I think um, good DEI is about. Uh, we judge people based on character rather than convictions. Sometime I'd love to talk about this one because I'm a little uh, confused about it and would like to hear more. Um, and that we promote tolerance instead of division. That to me is good DEI, right? That is an attempt to serve people, bring them along, facilitate common ground, hear different viewpoints, et cetera. So I appreciate the overlap in your values, my values, and what I would say anyway, should be values that are embraced by anyone who's doing this work that we call DEI. So that's how I think about the work. That's some of my background that uh, brought me to this work. I have some other things here that I want to show you, and I'll just keep talking, but now I really do invite you, there's not a ton of other stuff, but I really do invite you to interrupt any time. I, I know folks who are wrestling with what we should even call this thing that we currently call DEI. At one point it was multiculturalism, sometimes it's called cultural competence, as you know, it's just a whole lot of stuff. And when I hear folks struggling over terminology, I often say, well, let's not be slaves to terminology. What is it that we're doing? What do we wanna do? Where does this thing even come from? And it may be a bit of a simplification, but I hope not too much. The thing that we call DEI, efforts to make diverse environments as harmonious, as equitable as possible, comes out of the emergence of efforts to make places more diverse in the first place. You know, whether it's uh, diversifying the army, you know, back in, I think it was 48, or the Civil Rights Act, you know, that made clear that we ought not to discriminate against people who are of different backgrounds. 
Um, and then workforce efforts uh, to do two things at once. One is get more people from different backgrounds in here, and then realizing when we do that, there are great benefits. You know, they're better products because we have more intellectual diversity, more input from different backgrounds. But there are also people, people making assumptions about what people next to them think, like to eat, et cetera, that might not be accurate. And that can lead to discrimination, discomfort, all sorts of things. So let's not just bring in different types of people. Let's make sure we're ready for it. Right? And that requires some work. And that fundamentally is what it's supposed to be. The work is what I see of DEI. It doesn't always go perfectly, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, it is in its infancy. I mean, it really just sort of appeared not too many years ago. So as folks are applying some scrutiny you know, to this emerging discipline, field, paradigm, all of which isn't settled yet, I don't think that's a bad thing. I do observe that when I hear sort of vehement and absolutistic sort of calls to just end the whole thing, it makes me think quite ironically that it's like people who say, well, let's end policing, right? Like, yikes, I'm not sure we need to go that far, right? <laughs> Maybe there's some things here that are important. Maybe there's some things we have in common. Don't we all wanna protect and serve, you know, to use some terminology from, uh, from police world. Um, so, but I love talking about it. Right, because ultimately we do want our environments, whether they're schools or corporations or whatever it might be, to be as convivial and supportive for everybody who's there. So the work has to get done one way or the other. You know, Carlos, if Please. I may interrupt you there, you just hit on something that is um, dear to me. And I agree with you 100%. I think that <clears throat> the problem with DEI is it has been hijacked by both the left and the right. Um, you mentioned like policing, so all, all police are bad, but you mentioned DEI from the right, all DEI is bad. And so it's really, um, we've, we've hijacked language, I think on both sides. I, I don't think it's either or, I think it's both and, uh, I, and I think that that's the problem. We've gotten into this either or mindset. You know, if it's DEI, then it's, if it's, or, you know, if it's if from the right, if it's DEI, it's, you know, whatever label you want to call it. If it's not DEI, it's racist or whatever label you want to call it. And so I wanted to go something to what you said about character rather con than convictions in terms of hmm. the Institute of Liberal Values. And I, I know that that was vague, but I think that this speaks to what you're talking about right now. I think that the idea behind the term character rather than convictions it's not <clears throat> character over you know color or that they be yes they, we're not trying to recreate the mlk um you know that our children would be seen by their character versus the color of skin we understand i think i'm speaking for myself right now um i think i understand you know that we can't discount what's happened with people with different melanin in their skin over the course of our history. I think that that would be wrong to do. However, I feel like for me, we have gotten to the point now though where we've just kind of flipped the script, right? So we're still playing that race game. You know, we're still playing that, what color is your skin? And if, if you're white, you're bad. If you're black, you're this. And so I think it's like, it, we we're trying to get beyond those labels and that, that, um, 
kind of putting people in buckets where it's, we look at, yeah, we see color. Okay. That's there. Let's talk about it. But more importantly is our, our character and how we approach the world and that intersection, whether you're black, white, brown, whatever. So did I do a good job of explaining that? I mean, is there still, call me out. I mean, like, and I don't mean call me out, but you know, like where, where, where did I miss something or where? I'm also not a hundred percent certain about number four, to be honest with you. And I probably at one point or another uh, signed off on it as well, but I have to say it, you know, um, you know, I've judged people on their convictions. If their convictions are in some ways beyond the pale or demeaning to another human being. So I don't, I think that's a bit too vague. Um, vague. And I think it, it probably could use a little bit of Carlos's magic <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. to get it to the point where I think you're, we're on, to, I feel like we're on to something there. Um, but I don't think it's, it's, it's as specific as it needs to be. If, yeah. And let me um, make a, a meta observation again, as I did about the, the brief conversation about drinking, this is the work that we're doing right here, right? When it gets done well, this is how it goes, right? Folks aren't um, folks aren't afraid, you know, to countenance their views and try to articulate them as clearly as possible. But neither are they so prideful, you know, or arrogant or obstinate that they're going to say, "You cannot, you know, question me." You know, we're all open on all sides to saying. Actually, thanks. You know, I hadn't looked at it that way. I want this to be as good as possible. So thanks for your input. Let's keep working together. So yeah, not only in my view did you do a good job trying to sort of unpack, you know, what was meant uh, to be in the statement, but you also exemplified, you know, exactly what we need if we're going to try to, you know, sort of cohabitate um, so many different environments. And I, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this one. Um, I wonder if this one is sort of about good faith, right? that we are coming to each other without any, um, you know, intent to exploit or trick. Um, and that counts as much as what we believe. But it's also okay to engage with people about what we do believe, because there might be some really valuable things that we have in common. And there might be some things that we should try to work out because they feel like a conflict. So I think both of those things are always in play. But thanks, I appreciate that. Yeah, and you yeah. Know, but, you, but you're right, though, too. I just wanted to point out, I mean, there are people with convictions that, oh, would, that, that we would not want to be part of our, you know, circle. So I, I, I agree, like, that that idea is needs to be sussed out a little bit more. And these are the conversations exactly that we need to be having. So, yeah, I'm, I'm on your page right now. So. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> and it's actually a good segue to something that I'll, I'll share again in terms of trying to... Um, demonstrate what I think anyway is, is how a good way to approach this work. So the image I'm showing for folks who don't have um, uh, the ability to see right now is the very top of a probably too long document that I've been drafting that has a too long title uh, that is This Work in Progress, Diversity Without Divisiveness, a Primer and a Reassurance for Parents, Teachers, and Those Curious About Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Work, particularly in schools, but it's expandable beyond that. Um, you, we've had a chance to talk about this before, uh, Jen, David, and I, for those of you who weren't in the room then, uh, about you know diversity without divisiveness being sort of a goal. Like if we are out to one, acknowledge that the world is becoming more diverse, whether we like it or not, and two, that we wanna reap the benefits of diversity of all kinds, then we also have to contend with the 
the sad possibility that when there are more people with different viewpoints in a room, there can be some friction. So let's engineer against that as much as possible. Let's make it not divisive. So I have a, a poem here by someone named Edwin Markham, um, which I just love. And I put it on a lot of what I do. And I'm just going to read it for those who can't see it. They drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle and took them in. And that to me is sort of a guiding aspiration. Not always possible. <laughs> like sometimes like you stand in your square and I'll stand in mine and let's be honest about it. But I think whenever possible, this has to be what we're after. So what happens beneath uh, what's on this slide is what I'm about to read to you. And it's why I think uh, this work that we call diversity work is important. So I'm gonna read a little bit, a few stanzas to you. It goes, some parents reading this have a child who is left-handed in a world built for people who are right-handed. These parents have every right to expect that their child will not be forced to learn to write or throw or eat with a hand that feels right for everyone else. Some parents reading this have a child whose learning style diverges from the majority of students at their school. These parents have every right to expect that their child will not be teased or ostracized or labeled or treated as lazy or incompetent and to expect that instead, their child will receive what they need to learn and thrive as much as every other student receives what they need to learn and thrive. Some parents reading this have children who observe religious and or cultural customs that are not well reflected in their school's calendar of holidays. These parents have every right to expect that their child will be released from homework and or attending school while observing traditions that are every bit as important as those observed by other students at school. Some parents reading this have a child whose appearance leads others to perceive them as a boy when in fact they feel as clearly and as strongly that they are a girl or both, a girl and boy or neither or something else as do the kids who look like boys and feel that they are boys and the kids who look like girls and feel they are girls. These parents have every right to expect that their child will not be misgendered and forced to live as false and oppressive of life, a life as would be true for a cisgendered child who was forced to behave as if they identified in a non-cisgendered way. Some parents reading this have children who are perceived and treated as if they are members of societies of social identity groups that have historical, historically and can continue to be disadvantaged and confronted with discrimination and even violence. These parents have every right to expect that their child will be provided with equitable regard, protection, encouragement, support, and love through policies, pedagogy, programs, and environments that reflect their worth and worthiness. Every parent reading this has every right to expect that their child's school understands the well-documented, empirically indisputable, and inseparable interactions between effectively fostering a sense of belonging in students and effectively teaching students the subject matter that will equip them, equip them to be constructive, productive, and prosperous citizens. I would like to think that on these points, all parents are truly united. I hope that when we think about you know, what we're trying to accomplish, that's common ground for all of us. And I think what, what can happen is we start to feel like somebody in one of these groups has an agenda that's gonna make the rest of us feel left out or that we are the villain or something like that. 
Um, and I understand that. And I think we have to almost anticipate that as a reflex. You know, why not? Especially where kids are concerned, right? <laughs> because we want to protect our kids. But I think if the work is done well, we can anticipate and get people ready for that possible visceral response and then move through it and find our common ground. So I wanted to share that with you too. Thank you. So I appreciate that, Carlos. And I think we probably have very similar educational philosophies as well. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up as uh, a typical, I'd like to say ADD boy, attention deficit disorder boy. I had a hard time concentrating in classes. Teachers probably thought I was unintelligent. In fact, I remember my fourth grade teacher saying, um, David is going to be an artist when he grows up because I was good at drawing. Um, and the truth is that she overstated my artistic talent and understated my intellectual talents. Um, but that's okay. And uh, it was probably that challenge maybe was good for me. I had a sort of a recognition maybe later on in my teenage years that I actually could uh, do certain things better than maybe my teachers, earlier teachers thought. I then, of course, had kids of my own, two boys of their own, both of whom had um, attention deficit disorder or ADD. And... I've um, and I and I struggled with with what to tell them and what to push back on the system with. Yes. And um, on the one hand, um, I wanted them to feel like they were smart and that they could navigate the world. But I also wanted them to know that there is a system yeah. and that that system might be unfair or might not be as diverse as it should be or allow for as many learning styles as it should, but that we couldn't change that overnight and that they were going to have to figure it out even if it wasn't completely fair. And I'm wondering how you think of that tension between trying to create a world that is that does allow for a multiplicity of learning styles or multiplicity of cultures, a multiplicity of being, and at the same time, helping reconcile kids to the system that actually is. Well, it turns out you are smart in different ways and you are also artistic, you know, in your ability to sort of frame and articulate things. So that's awesome. When, um, when I get the pleasure of working with um, people of any age, but certainly children who experience, you know, the kind of uh, attentional qualities <laughs> that we're talking about now, one of the things I always say to them, and I can say it with sincerity because I know the science is behind it, is that you have a superpower, right? This thing that people are concerned about that has to do with your attention just running from one thing to another so quickly that gets in the way of the way they want to teach you, that's an amazing thing. Because back in the day, like you were so valuable to the tribe because you saw everything happening all the time. And when it was time to lock in, you locked in, which we know is true of folks with attentional sure. stuff. It's not that they don't pay attention. Boy, when they lock in, they lock in. They just don't always pay attention to the thing you want them to pay attention to, which brings up the systemic stuff that you're talking about. Um, I spent a lot of time working in what we call special needs environments, and it was poignant in many ways. Uh, but one of the ways in which it was really encouraging is that it was a way that the world tried to, you know, create environment uh, for students who weren't being well served, you know, by what we call the mainstream. Not, not kids who were failing in the mainstream, but kids who the mainstream was failing, right? And those attempts, you know, aren't perfect either. 
So I do think there are ways in which we're trying to, you know, bring about that better, more expansive and inclusive um, educational space and, and sphere for students. But we have a long way to go. And I'm sure you are getting, I mean, the messages that you say you, you gave to your kids are the message, sadly, that we have to give about any social identity, any circumstance that is not in and of itself bad, you know, because what, what if that is natural about us can be called bad but does run into a world that hasn't yet, you know, found a way to be expansive and appreciative enough of it. And that more and more folks know that, you know, my loves is what I would say, we are gonna be in the vanguard, you know, of pushing for that. And if I'm gonna be honest with you, and I always wanna be honest with you, it's not gonna feel good sometimes, you know. Yeah, right. Here we and are. That's where you help, where you help yeah. them build resilience. That's because exactly even, right. even the best, most inclusive systems are still systems. They're still operate with some baseline. They still have to operate at scale to a degree. And, um, and that means that they're not going to be perfectly attuned to including everyone's multiplicity of styles. And I, I, that's a hard, you know, otherwise you're talking about utopia. You know, and I don't think there is a, you, you, right, I don't think that there is a utopia out there that we can create, we can create more or less inclusive systems. You know, yeah, and I think most of us, because per, perhaps because we don't know a better world, would say like, oh, utopia might be boring. Like we want a world with challenges. Like <laughs> right. We want something to keep striving for. We want to work with people towards something better. But neither do we want anybody to experience what feels like an apocalyptic uh, dystopia, you know, for sure. themselves or people sure. of their kind. And I think that's the tension that we have to keep to as healthy as possible. Yeah, I mean, let, let me talk to you a little bit about how I see systems. And, and I, I recognize that I'm coming from this from a person where the system has benefited me. Um, I think there is a system. Uh, the story that really impacts me the most around systems is a story around where we uh, desegregated schools. And the story, as I understand it, and Carlos, if, I, if I've got it wrong, please correct me, though, is you know, when the, the Supreme Court desegregated schools, what ended up happening, what a byproduct of that happened, was that a lot of Black teachers lost their jobs. Why? Because a lot of the kids went from you know, lower income neighborhoods, primarily at that time, Black neighborhoods, into white neighborhoods. What happened was, so the system was trying to work in a way that was equitable, you know, with equality, whatever. We, we can talk about equitable at another time. I think that's, that's a conversation for another day. But they didn't have, systems are made of people. And the people who created that desegregation policy didn't have the interpersonal relationships to understand that if they employ this system, its impact. And so what I think is, I think that there are systems, I absolutely think there's systems. This is where I think critical race theory has a point. There are systems. But where I think our conversation around systems gets lost in today's conversation around critical social justice and diversity training is it's the interpersonal relationship and not this labeling and putting people back into these buckets, again, of race, sex, whatever, where we're seeing people just as like the color of their skin or their you know sexual orientation or whatnot, that has created a system that was inequitable in the first place. And the way we're doing DEI 
<clears throat> while it might be giving a portion of the people who previously to our system were left out, it's just playing the same game. You're just changing who's on top, you know, who's the winner and who's the loser. And so <clears throat> I really have a problem with the idea. I, I think that we need to explore systems. But what I think we need to know is by playing into the same system that got us here in the first place. And I think, Carlos, what I've heard you say is you can't, I, I believe you said this, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, in your TEDx talk, but you mentioned that you can't, um, what is the quote? You can't fix the master's house with the master's tools or something like that. Is that? But the master's map will never get us beyond the master's boundaries. Right. And you talk about that in your TEDx talk, right? You talk about how, you know, and so I feel like we're using the same map. We are. And, you know, so there's the lack of interpersonal awareness and connection and information that goes into these monumental decisions. You're right about that. And, you know, now referring to the stuff that I talk about in the TED Talk, there's also this false bottom that we're working on, right? That if we just, you know, redistribute, you know, some of the resources, energies, advocacy, away from one group that does have too much of it, like let's all be clear about that, to some groups that have less and need more, everything's gonna be okay. And one of the things that I know is, it's, it's deliberately provocative in my TED talk that I say is like, that's not gonna work. Like we're not gonna achieve racial equality because that's an oxymoron. Like race and racism are predicated on inequality. Yeah. We need to move out of that paradigm altogether. Mm -hmm. you know. And what you actually, both of you have been like queuing up the next thing really nicely <laughs> that we choreographed this. But one of the ways, you know, that I try to encourage an inclusive uh, approach to inclusivity is this next thing that I'll show. And for those of you who can't see the visual, this is the hardest thing that I'll have to explain. So I hope you'll see it um, later. But if you can't see it, what's on the screen right now is sort of a, an infographic thing. It says the social identity prism, like a prism that, you know, light flashes through. So on the left side of this document is a picture of a prism. And to the extreme light is the word human. And from the word human, there's one ray you know, of light that then hits the prism and then just explodes into all these colors, the rainbow and more. Each strand of light you know, has next to it a term and each term is a social identity category. And they are family, ethnicity, heritage, that's one. Physical appearance is another. The next is age, followed by ability, followed by gender, followed by sexual orientation, followed by race, followed by social status, followed by worldview dash belief system. And as you can probably tell, even if you're just listening, this is my attempt to capture just about every way that we categorize each other into social identities. And just to be safe, I added a plus strand on the bottom because if there's something missing that's important to you, I wanna give permission and apology you know, that I didn't include that there. To the right of all that, there's a bit of wording and it says this, our brains tend to sort, simplify and rank everything, including personhood. That's a human universal. That's what our brains do. And again, it gets us through each day. This or that, good or bad, us or them. It's hard for us to hold the multiple intersecting aspects of personhood all at once in our minds. Instead, like a prism, we often refract our complex whole selves into narrow categories. Recognizing the full spectrum of social identity, 
and resisting the tendency to reduce people to one or another restrictive category enables us to think critically and inclusively, engage empathically, reduce social bias, and thrive in an increasingly complex and interconnected world. And the last thing that I'll share from this infographic reads, whoever you are and however you are, you are safe here. That has to be the goal. You are right, you know, Jen, that sadly, the way we go about what's sometimes called identity politics. And again, I, I think we need to be empathic about why we do this, but it doesn't mean we have to accept it as the best way. But we end up like we tribalize, right? We reduce, right? If people are coming at us, you know, based on some narrow conception of our identity, then it becomes almost reflexive for us to battle them based on that too. You know, so we end up with, and again, no disrespect to anybody who stands behind these banners, I do at times too. We end up with feminism. We end up with, you know, um, Black Lives Matter. We end up with Blue Lives Matter. Like we end up with these folks who are being um, oppressed, wanting to just push back and to mobilize based on the thing they're being oppressed by. And then when it looks like all our energies are going to one place, like the folks who are in the ability strand want to know like, why are we focusing so much on this race thing? I'm not saying there isn't racism, but what about us? And then the folks who are in the, you know, the, the lower socioeconomic strand say, how come we're not talking about poverty in this country? And what I tend to say to folks is, it's all there all the time. And one of the things that we lose when we focus on just one of these things is that you don't have an age without having a physical appearance. You don't have a sexual orientation without having a social status. You are an intersectional being. At the same time, there are times when one aspect of who you are and how you're seen is gonna be more salient because people are coming at you based on that. And wouldn't it be wonderful if at those moments, instead of not just the people who share that particular, you know, um, targeted identified identity show up, but everybody who cares about this stuff shows up. Can we change the way we do coalition from corporeality, like our skin, to circumstance, right? And to coalition. And I think, again, if this work is done well, that's what we're moving towards. Yeah. So, Kranz, I wanted to explore a topic that you raised with us in a private conversation, and it was around systemic racism, because it's one of these terms that we hear a lot about, arguably, when people are talking about, quote unquote, CRT in schools, what they're really talking about is whether or not systemic racism should be taught as a factor in opinion. And I wanna, um, I wanna, um, I wanna ask you about it. Um, I'm fascinated by the topic, by the way, and I just wanna put up front that, you know, I believe there is systemic racism in America, and certainly there's been systemic racism in American history. I mean, if slavery and, Jim Crow weren't systemic racism, I don't know what is. Um, they were built into the system of society. I have, um, I have, though when I hear the term systemic racism, um, I start to wonder what people mean by it. And I've actually uh, come up with a list, I don't have it in front of me, but I could probably get a few of them off the top of my head, of six, six different definitions that I've heard um, when people use the term. Um, one of them, goes back to what we were talking about systems themselves about um, about you know sort of dominant systems right that there are there's a dominant educational paradigm that holds certain kinds of uh, learning styles to be above other kinds of learning styles and so forth um, and yet you know you'd probably find that in just about every society in the world I mean there was a dominant culture or dominant cultures 
Um, and so I have a hard time attributing, if, if that's what systemic racism is, in other words, if it's whiteness, if it's the idea that there is a white dominant culture or cultures, and that um, that in, if a, in and of itself is a kind of racism, I, 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 I'm not sure I, I buy into that. Although I, if, it's, if, if what you mean by white dominated culture is that it's inherently suppressing other people, then that's a problem and that can be critiqued. But I think every country, I think Ghana has Ghanaian supremacy and Mexico has Mexican supremacy. There's dominant cultures in those societies that favor certain kinds of behavior and disfavor other kinds of behavior or ideas. And, and so I, I'm, so I want to get a sense of what you believe systemic racism is and how we can talk about it. Well, thank you for the invitation, which I am afraid is an invitation to be a little bit pedantic, but I'll try to not be, uh, I promise. I just um, was, so don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll jump in by saying, and I want to make sure I hit one thing that has to do with this before we end, so I'm going to sort of watch myself. Um, so in your wonderful sort of canvassing of some of the, the constellation, I think, of issues that is, that's in here, there's systemic racism, there's white supremacy culture, right? You didn't know, label it that, but that's where the cultural piece comes in. Right. Um, there's white privilege, which we didn't mention, but it's also sort of a lightning rod for some people as well. I don't, I don't think anyone should find uh, it compelling or fascinating to argue whether or not there's systemic social bias in any given society. There is, the data's there. Like, can we just like not do that anymore? Because in some ways when folks engage us in that, well, nah, there isn't, like they've already won the battle of avoiding dealing with the thing that's already the case. Yup, systemic bias occurs in every society, sadly. We need to manage that tension. And we were talking about it actually in a very specific case that you brought up earlier, right? Systems uh, develop, they tend to favor certain things. It's hard for them to account for everything. And then suddenly there's a bias, probably inadvertent, we hope so, but we also know sometimes not. Now, what's the best way to talk about those things in a way that doesn't invite, you know, tendentious sort of um, arguments against it or ignorance or whatever it might be? I think part and, of it- And the is, other question I wanted to pose oh, while you're at right. it is what does it explain and what doesn't it explain? And what other factors are we permitted to talk about in addition to systemic bias? In other words, um, are there, are we, is the conversation closed to other explanatory factors? And I think that's part of the critique of DEI itself is that it, it tends to try to say there's systemic bias, be aware of it, and don't talk about any other factors that might uh, explain disparity. And I think that's where people feel shut down sometimes. Well, and I will hearkening back to my um, a little bit tongue in cheek comparison to policing, like, the answer is like, no, don't look at it that way. It's not all of it. Like there are people who actually do this work better than that, who are hungry to put in as many factors as we can. You know why? Because it's a complex thing. And if we don't get all the variables, we're probably gonna get it wrong. So yes, absolutely. We need to talk about other things too. The danger comes, you know, when those um, who are posing the question you just did are doing it from a cynical place, 
you know, when it's a bit of a Trojan horse, right, to throw things off the rails. And that's a tough one. And it puts DEI people like, like on their guard, right? You know, and I try not to be on the guard. That's why I'm talking with you today. Like we have to have yeah, good faith exactly. and hope that we can connect. So there is social identity, supremacy, and bias. In our society, that tends to flow towards people who are racialized as white. Right. But when we say things like white supremacy, you know, white supremacy culture, white privilege, and we are saying a lot of you sort of fit in this category, the natural reflex for some people is, well, you mean me? Like, just because I've been white racialized, I'm a supremacist, that doesn't feel right. And that's a distraction. It would be better, I think, to be able to say, some of us have unearned privileges, some of us has unfair bias and we are all relegated to some sort of racial status. Let's all work together to one, understand that, sort of decouple the essentialism from the circumstance we find ourselves in and keep pushing forward. And let's talk about all the factors. What's an example? When I was applying to college and you know, some of the kids I'm counseling now at a, at a prep school just down the road are experiencing that they sort of expect you to go to campus and have an interview. Now, COVID has sort of bent that a little bit, but it'll flex back to what it used to be real soon. That's not possible for some people, but that is part of the system of applying for college in our country. What are we doing about that? SATs are starting to fall away a little bit. So changes are happening, but those are one of millions of examples of something that is systemic, you know, that can have some um, unfair consequences for some folks who are in some circumstances. Right, now that's, I hope, not attributable to white supremacy or anything else. It's just a problem, let's fix it. It's like a structural impairment in a building, right? We built this beautiful building, it has no elevators. Like, yikes, we made a mistake, right? Let's not get mad at each other and say that we are ableist, you know, and we're demonstrating that. In effect, we're certainly biased against people who need certain things they're not getting, but it doesn't have to be blame and shame. It can be correction and soon it's anticipating and trying to make things as hospitable as possible for everybody, right? Yeah. I wanna show you a couple more things because I know we're gonna run out of time. Uh, for those of you who can't see the screen, I came up a couple of years ago um, with something called uh, Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Ally Pact, right? And this is for folks who wanna be good allies to anybody. <laughs> who's experiencing any sorts of uh, pushback because of their, their social identity status. It includes basically one, two, four things. Um, I know I have blind spots and an inability to see that what I'm doing might be harmful to someone. I know I have tough spots, the natural resistance to input that suggests my behavior conflicts with my intention. We can have good intentions and still have bad impact. I know I have blank spots a lack of data and knowledge about crucial differences and social advantages and disadvantages between myself and others. And I know I have work to do. I promise to do the work I need to, to see my biases, spare you of my defensiveness and educate myself in order to be the most effective teacher, student, parent, family member, et cetera, I can be. I hope you will always feel entitled to let me know if my blind, tough or blank spots ever cause you to feel anything less than respected included and well served by me. I promise to always do my best to receive your notice of my mistakes in humility and gratitude. And that's for everybody. It's for me as a male identified and socialized person when I'm dealing with issues around women identified stuff. I have a susceptibility, I'm gonna have my blind spots. And I hope it's a common ground agreement, like to move through things together. I'll give you a chance to ask about that in a moment. But the last thing I wanna offer 
And this is, I sort of have versions of this, but I drafted this one as I've been following some of the legislation that's been growing in the country against uh, divisive teaching, let's call it. While we wanna protect children from being blamed and shamed because of their identity and the way we teach history. And as I read the legislation and some of the measures that are coming out, like my question is, like we're not saying we shouldn't teach the facts, are we? That wouldn't be good because it feels that way to some people. And if we're saying we shouldn't make anybody feel bad when they shouldn't feel bad, we all agree with that. So how come we just don't come up with a way to protect against that? And what might that look like? So for those of you who can't see the screen right now, I have something here that says, in America, we don't fear the truth, an advisory. And the title is tongue in cheek. You know, if we wanna be patriotic, patriotic about this, then let's be our best selves and be the home of the free and the brave and the courageous. So it reads this way. Genes plus environment plus chance plus choice equals you. You are a complicated, intersectional, volitional being. You, like anyone else, cannot be reduced to some essentialized human type whose behavior is predictably good or bad. Let's begin with that. Our study, and I'm now talking to my kids, right? We're studying whatever we're studying. Our study will explore crucial facts about human history and American history, some of which illuminate the ways in which people and events have strayed from our ideals of parody, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We will study how Columbus invaded this continent, the Trail of Tears, the Middle Passage, the Holocaust, and the interaction between social identity, social bias, and social justice. These things are real and have shaped the world and our lives no less than natural disasters or pandemics. They mustn't be ignored because they exist as patterns that will only change through discernment, disruption, and reconstruction. When we learn about people who acted in ways that contradict our ideals, it will be important not to fall into the trap of thinking that people who share outward characteristics are bound to be alike in terms of their conduct. When we study how the world has come to be as it is, the good, the bad, and the ugly, we are not blaming people here and now for what happened there and then, and we are not condemning people to continue bad patterns. We are freeing and empowering everyone to make their own decisions. Now let's go learn the truth. That's an advisory. And we give them an also, they used to be called trigger warnings, right? We're reading a novel, somebody dies in it. It's apparent for those of you who have experienced that, like if you still wanna be here, just be ready for it. But it's important to move through this together. And I just wonder why we aren't seeing that in some of the legislation and I'm offering it to anybody who might wanna find a way to move through this stuff. I know that's taken us to the end of the hour and I've talked a lot, you've been very indulgent. If you wanna extend and ask me a question about any of this, I'm happy to. I think Carlos, this is, this deserves a part two. Oh, um, I'd be happy to talk more with you. It's yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, we Please. can follow up with a few questions right now, but I do think this deserves a part two because there's so many questions I still have for you. And I'm so great, I want you to know though, I'm so grateful because there's, there's so few opportunities for those of us who are, and, and I know that you're in this, we're all kind of in this same circle together, but you lean more on like, let's, let's do the DEI, but maybe it's slightly different. And me, and I won't speak for David, but me, who's like, I love diversity, but I think we're doing it wrong. And I think that intersection is a place that no one speaks. It's a place where no one speaks. And we're doing that now. We just scratched the surface. I mean, we could do this literally for like hour upon hour and upon hour. So my suggestion is let's stop that with your suggestion on how we do this and your 
what you just laid out, which is beautiful. And let's plan another time because I've got questions for you on exactly, on the praxis, if you will, right? On the praxis. That's the thing that I think that we need to talk about next, where I'm all about that. The reason I'm even having this conversation, even though some people sometimes see me as on one side or the other, um, depending on which side they're coming from, <laughs> you know, is I care so much about this. That's why I'm having this conversation. Yes. Right. I might not agree with you, but I care about it enough like you do to keep having this conversation, even where we disagree. And so let's make part two about the praxis of exactly what we're doing and how we can make that praxis be something that's actionable, because that's where I I, I, I get concerned. I care less about system. I mean, I believe in, like David mentioned too, I, I think that we over, I think we might rely on systems too much as a explanatory factor, but I believe that they're there. And so we can touch on that again, too. Um, but it's like, again, we, 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 it's, we, we found this either or it's either systems or the individuals. It's either, you know, black or it's white. And there's, it's, we're discounting the complexity and nuance of the human species in interaction. You know? Absolutely. Sometimes, and I love the word intersectionality and what it leads us to think about, but sometimes I say it's more complicated than that. It's a confluence, right? It's mm -hmm. fluid, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard to know what's all in the mix. And if we don't keep asking, we can really miss some things that are important. So I don't disagree with you um, when you say that we need to expand the discourse to systems and structures and um, history and individuals and psychology and sociology. Like there's a whole lot that belongs in here that very few people in one body can bring to the discussion, yeah. which then means we need a diversity of brains and minds to really make this conversation and work work. And again, I, I applaud you both, you know, for not doing it all perfectly. You know, there are things that you know um, I'm concerned about in terms of the website and like, who do you feature and all that stuff. But look, like I'm here talking with you and it's been right. a lovely conversation. And I think that's the only path forward. Otherwise we go back to our echo chambers and that's not good, right? I could not agree more. And I think it's really important that we keep these conversations going. And, you know, I, while I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I 100% agree with, with your framework, I think I probably wouldn't have, if I, if I went through your DEI, I probably would not be doing what I'm doing right now. I mean, I know that that sounds strange, but you know, I had my earliest experiences with DEI were really quite traumatizing for me. They they made me feel like I couldn't express myself. That some key aspect of who I was, I had to my the way I looked at the world was being repressed. And so, um, but I but I think I think that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of possibility for conversation and I'm. Um, Grateful to see your approach. So thank you so much, Carlos. And let's do this more. Let's do this again and go to that next level, as Jen said. I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website, where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say, hold my drink and the conversation gets real.